Well, good morning. Please open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 52. And we'll pick it up in verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. And I was just trusting the sound room, Edwin, back there, that uh, the microphone was off during that last song, because I sing that one pretty loud. I'm up in the front row. No one in front of me can hear me. And I'm really hoping that didn't go out on live stream for any of you. If it did, I'm sorry. But the words of that song and the communion service today fit perfectly with what is being discussed here today, the passage that we're looking at. The, uh, the, this section, um, Isaiah 53 and the preceding verses here, are actually considered by many in church history to be uh, the fourth gospel, or the fifth gospel, excuse me, the fifth gospel. That it, it presents so much truth about the Savior and his redemption for us, we have the gospel here presented in the Old Testament. Isaiah has oftentimes been called the Romans of the Old Testament. And here we come to like the apex in many ways of, of what's coming with the Messiah. And it's easy to, uh, to see all of the, the, uh, the connections to Jesus Christ now, but in the time in which it was written, around 700 B.C., uh, this would have been a very enigmatic text, rather confusing text, because you see an up and a down at the same time, within the same verse even at times. And that's going to be tough to decipher if you're living, living in that time. And even now, it's not without its complications, to be sure. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15, I really think should be included with chapter 53, if we could do that at all. But uh, that's not going to happen, obviously. But this definitely needs to be included in this whole section here regarding our Savior. Behold, verse 13 begins with that word, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, what, what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, the effort today is to magnify you, to make much of you, to exalt your Son properly for us to see him in his glory, to understand the, the wonders of salvation, of your plan, of your servant. May that message reach ears. May we have ears to hear. Or may we not just be hearers of the word, though, but may we be effectual doers. May we take what we learn, what we know, and apply it in life. Or we know that your Holy Spirit is in us and among us, we pray for his work in our hearts, not necessarily the words of my, uh, my sermon here, Father, but Lord, uh, the words of your holy scripture, may they be used to save souls, to change lives. 
Lord, we love you, and we are thankful to be able to gather today. We are thankful to have your word and to know that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, in whose name we pray. Amen. Consider the things that astonish you in life. I don't know what they are. Just a, when I walked up here at the beginning of the, the sermon, or not sermon, because that's what I'm doing, but at the beginning of this whole gathering, I came up, stood next to my wife, she put her arm around me, tapped me on the side, and I jumped, because I thought somebody was on the other side. That, that startled me a little bit. Uh, this morning, I thought we were good to go on time. You know, and the, the kids were ready to go, and I was not. And I realized, oh, it's getting late. Didn't even have my shoes on yet or anything. And I thought, whoa, that, that was a little bit starting. But that's not astonishing. Not if we're actually taking the word for what it truly means. We've washed out the meaning of so many things because we use superlatives all the time, like I just did. We're, we're using words like awesome to talk about brownies and cupcakes. You know, we, we, that's not awe-inspiring. That doesn't provoke me to drop in wonder. But consider the things that have truly astonished you. And I was trying to think of something over the last week that was um, universal to us. And the best thing I could come up with, which actually doesn't reach some in this room, was back in September 11th, 2001. If you were like me, which you probably weren't, you were sleeping in that morning. And a guy came over to my room and goes, Gilly, nobody called me by my first name. But the guy comes over and goes, Gilly. I'm like, yeah, man, what's up? He goes, come here. What? Come here. And I didn't want to move because, you know, I want a college guy. I want to sleep in. And he goes, you got you to gotta see this. This is, somebody hit the, one of the Twin Towers in New York. And where, where Priscilla and I went to school is about an hour and a half from New York City. So we had a lot of people at the school that were from that area. Priscilla, you could see the Twin Towers from her house uh, in New Jersey where, where she lived. Um, so she was very close to that, and so were many of the people at the school. And, um, I, you know, I hadn't been there yet. So it wasn't as shocking to me, I guess you could say. And he goes, well, come, come here, you've got to see this. So I walk out in the, the lobby there, and there's a TV, and he's like, watch this. And all I see is a tower smoking. I don't see much of anything. I said, what happened to the, and he goes, dude, a plane flew, into it, flew, flew right into it. I said, no. He goes, just watch, they'll, they'll play it again. And then a replay comes through. You know, and then we're sitting there, we're, you know, you're just standing there like, what? This can't be real. And then, the, then you see the second plane come in and hit that second tower. And now, if you're like me, you're like, oh, this was no accident. This just got real. Like, what just happened? That... But what astonished me, what truly arrested my attention to where I couldn't talk, with the, with the two planes hitting, I was still asking questions. I was constantly like, what, wait, who did this? Why is this? And I was asking questions. And we started talking to people around us and that kind of waking other people up and, all, and trying, to get the, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. One guy knew people right there in New York and he's like trying to call his mom right away and that kind of, that's what was happening. But what astonished me was when they showed the footage of the building on fire and the people breaking out the windows and leaning out the windows. Remember that? And you were watching and then somebody, I don't remember the first person, they jumped. And many of you can remember this. 
very vividly. You remember watching it on TV. I remember seeing that, and I just did one of those, because you knew exactly what, they jumped from the 90th floor. There's nothing they're going, there's no safety. What kind of despair do you have to be in to, to step out of the building like that? And then more people started doing it, and it was, it was truly astonishing. You didn't know what to say anymore. There was, there was nothing left. And then it kept getting worse, as we know. We know the, the rest of the story. The towers fall and all of the wretchedness of that, the 3,000 people that lost their lives. I went to New York about an, a month after the towers fell, and um, me and some friends went there to Ground Zero, and it was the craziest thing to be in New York City and to see the hush, the quiet that was still over that area. No one was talking. We were walking all around that area, Ground Zero, and people were still very quiet and calm. It was like a respectful hush was over the whole region. It was incredible. That was astonishing. But as astonishing as that or some other major event you can think of in your life is, it's nothing like your Messiah. And the awful reality is that we as humans adapt. God gave us this ability to adapt to situations, to get used to things. And one of the things that we have gotten used to is how marvelous, how astonishing the plan and the purpose and the servant of God truly is. The manner in which he comes is it's mind-blowing the more you consider it, especially when you consider the nature of the God who is presented in Isaiah. One of the most lofty sections in all of Scripture, speaking of how tremendous and transcendent, otherworldly God is, is found in chapter 40 through 50, roughly, of Isaiah. He speaks of the, the might of the nations as being nothing, as being a drop from a bucket compared to him, as dust on a scale. Nobody dusts the scale when you go to Walmart to buy your grapes. You don't go up there and when they, they measure the grapes, you don't say, hey, whoa, 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 I'm paying for grapes. I ain't paying for that dust on the scale. And nobody like cleans it off. All right, now you can weigh the grapes. We don't do that. Why? Because it's so insignificant, it doesn't matter. And that's the God that we're presented with. He is so incredible, so otherworldly, so vast that there's no comparison. There's no illustration. There's no story that's big enough about how incredible he is. And in the middle of that, you have the presentation of the Messiah coming. God's servant. And he comes in a manner like his presented here. Behold, that's a word, of course, that is meant to, <laughs> it's intended to arrest your attention. But in these days, if, I, guess, I guess it would still work, but it's becoming an archaic word. But if you were talking to one of your friends and they said to you, behold, you'd be like, whoa, what, are we, what just happened? I mean, you, would, you would get your attention. It's still serving its purpose. Behold, this is getting us to uh, realize there's a transition from what was said before to now. We have something that you need to pay attention to. Behold, my servant. This is the fourth time in Isaiah, the fourth and this is the last time in Isaiah, 
that we are presented with what are called the songs of the servant. One of those was read by Chris earlier in that passage, Isaiah 49, verse 1 through 7, is speaking of Messiah. Also so is chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. Those are sections of Isaiah that present Messiah. And this is the fourth time, and this is such a significant time that as I said in the opening there, this is considered a fifth gospel by many, and it's definitely a presentation of gospel truth that is uh, somewhat surpassing even things that are presented in the gospels. We learn more here about the brutality of what Jesus goes through than we do in the gospels. The gospels are fairly direct. They're fairly simple in their presentation, where this gives us more detail than we are even comfortable hearing if we examine it with any duration. The servant here uh, is the long-predicted coming Savior of mankind that has been foreshadowed and spoken of, and there's been a thread of connection all the way from the garden during the fall. This is thousands of years of buildup. This is the hope of Israel. This is the hope of humanity. And it's all building to this kind of crescendo. Who is Messiah, the servant, going to be? What's it going to be like? And to hear what we hear in this text, in, in this section of scripture, doesn't line up with expectation. All this drama has been building for thousands of years to this moment. And here he tells us that the servant will prosper. Well, that makes sense. That's exactly what I expect. For the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world, to prosper, to achieve his goal. Uh, there's no understanding of this word that does not include him being able to achieve his goal. Uh, in various translations say he will act wisely. This is not in the um, negative sense of like trying to avoid certain things. It's in the positive sense of he will know exactly what to do and when to do it. We see that exactly with Jesus Christ and his ministry here on earth and his incarnation. It says this, this servant will prosper. Now, I want you to consider, of course, when if you're a Jew of this time, you have been looking for Messiah. You've been hoping for Messiah. This is during the reign of Manasseh right now, the most wicked king of the south, the southern kingdom of Judah. This is the, the king who will one day saw Isaiah in two. This is a terribly wicked man who provoked the sons of Israel to do more evil than the Canaanites, than the people that they move in and take the land from. This is truly a very dark time, but they would, of course, be looking for Messiah in this time, and no leader has matched up. Moses wasn't the guy. As good as he was, Moses said, no, there's one coming who will come in a similar vein to me. He's not the, the leader. He also failed in various ways. We remember his sins. They are highlighted for us in Scripture. No judge who judged the land. You read through the book of Judges and you see a bunch of leaders that are like, wow, how is God using this guy? I mean, read Samson. That's a, that's a very mixed figure there, isn't he? Also, you look at uh, Joshua. 
as good as he was, Joshua was not going to be the, the deliverer. He's not um, able to do that. He didn't have that capacity. He didn't have that ministry. Joshua seems to be a, a very apt leader, but he certainly had his problems, his failings. And then you start looking at the different kings. Who's the greatest king in their lineage? David. You ever investigate the life of David and found him to be a little bit lacking? Jordan and I were discussing here recently. David's called the man after God's heart, but the man after God's heart did some really messed up stuff. He had at least 14 wives, for one. He accumulated horses, to a degree. He certainly accumulated uh, many sins. You see a trail of sins along the way. You see his murder of Uriah in the most treacherous, treacherous of ways. And then, of course, what happened with Bathsheba. Uh, David was such a man that even though he wanted to build the temple, God did not allow him to do that. So David's your best and brightest light in the kingly lineage, who they probably would have been looking to as a potential deliverer. And look how far he falls short. And maybe one of the main reasons why God highlights, even for David, his failures, is so that we don't look to him for anything more than he is. He's a flawed man. The Messiah is not like that. God's servant is not like that. He's completely different. So this servant, when he comes, has declared that he will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That sounds a little redundant. Sounds a little repetitive. But we all know the threefold repetition of something in Scripture is expressing something in the superlative. But we also know that in English. If I say something in three different ways, as a teacher, you know I'm trying to drive a point home. So what is the extent to which this Messiah will be exalted? High, lifted up, greatly exalted. So is it any wonder then that Israel, when Jesus comes, they're looking past him to something and someone else? They are imagining a different sort of individual. You, you find this with the apostles all the time. They're, they're, they're always haggling over you know, who's the greatest among them. Why? Because they want to be in the, the inner circle of those who would be rising up with the kingdom. All the, the joys that they think are coming with the kingdom is what they're looking to. They're looking to a Messiah high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. So they have a grand kingdom in their eyes and in their mind and their thinking. A great deliverer in the vein of Moses who will suppress and, and conquer their adversaries, who will remove all their problems but they're not truly looking for a savior as we know, looking through the gospels. They're not looking for someone to save them from their sins. They're, they think they're good enough on their own. They are righteous enough on their own. They don't need anyone to give them righteousness. They just want a king who will come and make things better, who will give them more of what they want. So I would imagine if you're a Jew of this time reading this scroll, you're going through this, and when it says the, the servant will prosper, he'll be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted, you know exactly what you're imagining. And then he says, just as many were astonished at you. So it's still continuing to build. 
astonished at you. And then in italics, it'll say in many of your translations, my people. The problem here is the pronouns are all over the place. You have first person pronouns in, the, in verse 13. Now you move to second person, and then it moves into third person. It, it was also third person in verse 13, and then it jumps back to third person in verse 14. So you see the dilemma. So translators, in trying to help us get this, believe that what is being spoken of here, when it says, just as many were astonished at you, we're speaking of Israel at this point. There's debate as to whether that is Israel or Messiah that's being spoken of. I don't see why it can't be the people of Israel, because when I think of Israel, I think of a nation that astonished the world over and over again. Consider what Israel passed through in their history. You consider the Exodus, of course. That shook the world. That was a a story that we know for at least 400 years was reverberating through the Mediterranean world. They they heard tell of it. They also uh, have incredible stories of deliverance when you talk about Joshua. I mean, the the parting of the Jordan. Have you thought about that one recently? The, The Jordan parts and the tribes go through and they all grab it. The leaders of each tribe grab a stone and, and they stack them, raise an altar of uncut stones to remind Israel of the day when this happened. That's astonishing. The river stopped for them. Dry ground they walked through on. Now, there are many other things you could highlight in the history of Israel that certainly uh, would move someone to be astonished by them. You can even move into the modern era as you consider this. How is Israel still a nation? You know, the the Hebrew language was a dead language for hundreds of years, thousand years or more. And it was revived in the 1800s in France by a Jewish fellow who decided he and his friends were just going to start speaking Hebrew again. They just revived a dead language. How often does that happen? How often does a people that have been scattered out of their own homeland for 1,500 years actually come back to it? How many times has that happened? Israel's an astonishing people. The Six-Day War and on and on we can go, considering some of the ways in which they astonish. But I would think most recently, in their mind, well, you got David and Goliath, you got other stories like that, but most recently for them would be just in the previous king, Hezekiah. You remember what happened there? The mightiest army in the world The Assyrians came with more than 185,000 men, the mightiest superpower of the time, and wiped out every rival. And they come for Israel. And And even in Assyria's own writings, they write that they had wiped out all of their other cities, and they hemmed in Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Israel is done. And what does Hezekiah do? And one of his finest moments is in his entire life, he drops, he tears his clothes, and he prays. He offers up a prayer to God Almighty, and God delivers the people. And in a night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Now that is truly astonishing. I've read different accounts of people trying to diminish the astonishing nature of any of the, the incredible things that happened in Israel, whether it's the Exodus or whether it's even this here. Let's say, well, it was some kind of disease that broke out in the camp. Okay. We're familiar with pandemics a little bit now. You don't get 185,000 dead in one night without some type of thing happening from God here. This was truly astonishing. The mightiest army 
in the world. The greatest power in the world at the time just defeated. They were never the same. Assyria was never the global threat that it was before this time. Can you imagine that? If America just goes down in a night, just... So here when he says, just as many were astonished at you, a reader might presume that is speaking of Israel. And there are many things in Israel's history that could astonish if you're looking at the miracles that happen, if a miracle doesn't astonish you, nothing will. But then he makes this crazy shift. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance, what are you expecting, was glorious and beautiful. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That is not the direction I thought this was going on a first reading. Now, you and I have gotten used to this. We've read through this enough times. Some of you probably have this entire section memorized or close to it. We, of course, can remember, those of us that are a little bit older, we can remember when Pastor Hellyer, every time he did communion back in the day, he would recite this section of Scripture every time. This is well known to us, but upon a first reading, this is truly jarring. How do you go from that? That is, he will prosper, he'll be high, lifted up, and exalted, to marred. On what planet does someone who is high, lifted up, and exalted end up being marred? That's not how we work. That's not how our brains tend to function in that way, look, he's going to be marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Well, that's, um, that's an interesting narrative shift. Certainly got my attention. And of course, we flash forward to the life of Christ. We remember some of what happened. We remember that just in the Sanhedrin alone, when they decide to murder him, they bring up false witnesses and all of that. Jesus remains silent, and what happens? The Sanhedrin starts to come unglued. They immediately start spitting him, spitting in his face and punching him in the face, pulling out his beard. I don't know how often in your life you've had someone spit in your face, like actually spit in your face, but there are few things more insulting. I've been punched in the face, and it bothered me less than being spit in the face, literally. Uh, the, the degrading nature of what they do with our Messiah, what we would have done ourselves without his grace, is truly shocking. That's just the Sanhedrin. In the murder of Jesus, it starts there with spitting in his face. Starts with spitting in his face. Wow. Then it moves to punching him. Everyone dogpiling on him. I've been jumped before by a crowd of people. A bunch of people attacked me once. And I had everybody kicking me and all this, and that was just overwhelming. That's the scenario. You, that's what happened to Messiah. I deserve what I got. But that's what happens to Messiah. A crowd of angry, supposed, civilized men, leaders of the country. This is like being uh, on the floor of the Senate the United States and everybody coming, actually more so, and the Senate coming unglued and, and destroying some guy, 
spitting in his face, kicking him, punching him, yanking his beard out. That's where it starts in the marring of the Savior. Then it moves, of course, to Pilate. And we know what happens there. We know that he is scourged. And maybe you've forgotten a scourging. But this is where it begins to get very uncomfortable. You had the whip with the chains. And at the end of those chains, you had pieces of metal and glass and whatever would do damage. And you would have the victim connected by chains, stretch out the back, remove the garment, and then you begin beating them in the back. And that whip would grab a hold. It wouldn't just snap. It would grab a hold, and then you pull it away, and it rips flesh off with it. And the stories of the Romans regarding a scourging and the damage it could do was utterly shocking. Many times they say that when a man was scourged, they would beat them so bad you could see their lungs through their back. That's the kind of damage that would be done from a scourging. And then they put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They use a stick and they beat that crown onto his head. Continuing with the mockery, bowing down before him, telling him to prophesy, spitting in his face. And they, of course, they're done. And I forgot to mention... um, to intensify the mockery that comes for Christ when Pilate sends him to be scourged. It says that the entire Roman cohort came down to enjoy the fun. If you know your Roman units at all, you know that a cohort is 300 to 600 men. Maybe you were bullied as a kid. Maybe you remember a group of people that maybe you embarrassed yourself severely. I remember when I was in fifth grade, the first time my voice ever cracked was in front of the whole school. I had one line in a school play, and it was something about Abe Lincoln. I don't even know what it was, but it was like, Abe Lincoln. And I was like, I don't know how many people heard it, but in my mind, the entire room was staring at me like, ah. It was, you know, it's stuck in my head. You ever had a crowd of people laugh at you and not because you were funny? Now you have 300 to 600 Roman soldiers gathered around who despise the Jews and have a man in front of them who is saying he's their king. Oh, man. This is the time to let all that anti-Semitism out. And they bring him in, and let's have some fun with this. The cruelty. 300 to 600 men laughing, mocking, carrying on, having a good time. And we all know, all us men know what a group of men can be like when they're a bit unhinged. Just even in the locker room, you know what that can be like. And here you have a Roman cohort having a good old time mocking Jesus. When they're done with that, of course, they rip the robe off. And, um, and then Jesus, of course, is presented to the people. And then Pilate sends him off to be crucified one of the most brutal, inhumane ways a person can ever be killed, grueling and exhausting. And Jesus is so weak before he even gets there that he can't carry his own cross because of the scourging that apparently was so severe, the beatings that were so severe. So when it says here that his appearance was marred, the many man, I believe it. 
I believe it. I've seen some uh, severely beaten up people in my life. Uh, and uh, some would say, well, uh, might object. Well, it says that not a bone in his body was broken. Well, you don't have to have things broken to be swollen up. Uh, so was his appearance marred. Again, what an incredible narrative shift that I would never imagine coming this direction. You go from greatly exalted to marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now why in the world would the servant of God do that? To perform his will and in that will is redeeming us. You redeemed by this servant. And many people might believe that they're a good person, but even people that don't know Christ would say, you know, I'm a good person, but I don't think anybody should endure that for me. Let alone someone like Jesus. Why do this? To perform the Father's will, that is the extent to which Christ was willing to go as the servant of God to, to do his will. He's willing to go to such an extreme as being marred more than any man. And thus, verse 15, he will sprinkle or startle many nations. What begins to happen now is that they... Um, we have a discussion here regarding this word sprinkle. This is a little more scholarly at this point, move from what we were talking about to this. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. There's two ways that this is understood. There's a lot in this. Uh, but the imagery of sprinkle naturally brings up the purification process for anything that was going into the, the temple. You can remember, even in the, the days of Moses, when he would purify the people. He took an oath, declared their willingness to follow God, and God said he was going to now bring them into his covenant people and all that, he goes through that whole process. And part of that was the leader stood before Moses and he went around with blood and he grabbed some hyssop and he dipped that plant into that blood and he sprinkled blood on the leaders. And then he did the same thing with any of the, the furniture, for lack of a better way to say it, that's going into the tabernacle. How do you purify something? We think soap and water, naturally. We think maybe use some peroxide, rubbing alcohol, something like that. God's purification process is a visual, constant visual reminder that blood is the only way for purification. As gross as blood is, all that we know about blood and the disease and all that stuff that can come with it, the purification process, the only way something can be purified in God's economy and God's way of thinking is with blood. All of that is pointing us to what must be paid for us, the sinner, to be made right with God. That is the greatest question of all time. That is the greatest issue that you must resolve in all of life. That is... How can a sinner be made right with God? 
The big questions that roll around in, in our world today are inconsequential by comparison. And we've got to get that through our heads. I, I've got to, to meditate upon that reality. Jesus didn't come and then preach against human trafficking. He didn't preach against racism. He didn't preach against all the things that have filled up so much of our headspace and taken up so much of our lives. You don't think there was racism back in the first century? Good grief, you don't know the first century at all if you think that. Exactly what I just talked about with the Romans and the Jews. It was constant. Tribalism. They didn't call it racism then, but tribalism like that, nationality, you know, national pride like that was constant. And it was vigorous and no one saw a problem with it. The ancient world was loaded with that kind of thinking. Slavery? Good grief. Slavery was as common as could be. And you don't find Paul or Jesus going after that all the time. They weren't political activists. Because the real issue is not whether people have a good life while they're here. It's not whether they have enough money or enough food even. The real issue is, are you right with God? That is where Jesus spends his time. That's where Paul, that's where the, the word of God spends its time. It doesn't mean that we don't get involved in any of these things of doing good and all of that. That's not what it's talking about. That's not what I'm saying. But the scriptures stick with that which is of paramount importance. How can I, the filthy sinner that I am, if you know me, and you know the depths of sin that is in me, if I know you, even a little bit of the way that God knows you, there is zero reason why you should be going to heaven. Why in the world should you ever, before the lofty, exalted, thrice holy God, ever be declared righteous? Righteous, purified, blameless. Is that you? Can you actually say that? If your life is, is tested and people melt down all of your, your nonsense and all the posturing you do, all the virtue signaling that's going on and all that, trying to look like a good person, when all that's removed, when it boils down to the, to the reality of things, do you really think that if God judged on a basis of scales of are you good or bad, do you do more good things or bad, you really think you stand up? Good luck passing through the Ten Commandments alone on that one. You ever stolen anything? Okay, modern era. Do you ever steal music? Do you ever steal TV shows? Do you ever break the copyright laws? Do you ever share your Netflix account with somebody else? Are you stealing at all kinds? Come on, you're stealing all, you're, you're acting like you're not. You've got all kinds of, and that's one commandment for goodness sake. Then we can go through them, but you would feel more convicted about that than you need to. In some ways, you need to feel the weight of the law weighing down on you so that you go, I need a Messiah. I need a Savior from my sin because, I, man, I am not righteous. I'm many things, but I'm not righteous. No one would look at me and go, man, that dude is holy, 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 for goodness sake. How is it that I can be made right with God? Somebody has to purify me. So I go back to verse 15, and he says, thus he will sprinkle many nations. The problem with translating it sprinkle, though, is that nations are not sprinkled other than Israel. 
No nation we ever read about is ever sprinkled, ever purified like that. And the whole nations are not saved like that. You might argue Assyria at one point when Jonah goes there. I don't know about that, but um, maybe. But to say here that he will sprinkle many nations doesn't seem to fit. And actually, the, the whole metaphor going through this is that of astonishment. It's that of being startled. And that's at the root of this Hebrew word of what's going on. So many uh, esteemed scholars on this level have moved more in the direction of saying, thus he will startle many nations. And that may be the better route to take this, to understand this. And then it says, in connecting this metaphor, he says he will sprinkle or he will uh, startle many nations. What is, what's a, a manifestation? It says here that kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. What are we talking about here? How do you uh, see something that you hadn't even been told? How do you understand something that you haven't even heard? What is this? What we have going on here I believe, is you have the first coming and the second coming of Christ at the same time in the same few verses. You have, in verse 14, certainly the first coming. But the second coming is not like unto the first. There's something fundamentally different about that. That's when all the expectations of kingdom and glory and and the Messiah being, in the stereotypical sense, high, lifted up, and exalted. Now that begins to happen. What am I talking about? Well, here at the end, what he's talking about, I believe, is the second coming. When Jesus comes, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. When he is shown and he is made visible, when he comes back, all those who mocked and who said, yeah, Jesus wasn't really a thing, he's not that important, so on, so all of those who would, who would try to doubt that will be put to utter shame to such a point as they are astonished. They, have, they are speechless that he comes back. And that when he comes back, he does not come as the lamb. He comes as the lion. Everything changes. The lion is here. The one who, they didn't even have their eschatology. They didn't understand the end times at all. They didn't read the book of Revelation. They don't understand what's coming. All of their end times understanding of the Bible will be worked out in a moment when Jesus appears. They'll go, aha. Astonishment will grip them at the return of Jesus Christ. Their understanding will be complete. They will get it. You see further explanation of what's going on here in the book of Revelation. It helps us understand just how astonishment, how astonishing it will be when he comes. The nations are in an uproar. They're plotting a vain thing, and they all are turning on each other, and the Antichrist is leading one coalition. They're all coming together to fight, and then Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up, and they plot a vain thing, and they all turn against God and his anointed and think they can take him down. And one of the most glorious parts of Scripture, we find that Jesus, in dealing with that assembled multitude of people that wants to destroy him, he merely speaks over. It's interesting, too, that the Apostle Paul takes this same verse, he uses it in Romans chapter 15, verse 12. He uses this same section and he expands the understanding of this verse to be speaking of the gospel. Which really drives the point home. 
He says in the beginning of chapter 53, that first phrase, our first sentence, who has believed our message? Who would believe this, that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God Almighty, as a servant, will be marred for our redemption? And that he will come back in such a tremendous, glorious fashion. Who would believe this message? The question is input to you. Do you believe this message? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one who has saved you from your sin? If you don't know that Messiah, please talk to me after. That would be the, the greatest day of your life if you were to arrive at that. To understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you and your sin. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for a time to look at your word, to consider the Messiah, our great Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. Lord, you are kind beyond words, you are gracious beyond understanding, and your mercies truly are new each morning. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for the chance to be here today and to open your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.